Let me say a, a prayer for the message, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that we don't have to try to, to figure who you are out through our own imagination or our own philosophies, but that you have put who you are into words, and we can know you, and you can know us. It's in your son's name that we pray, Jesus Christ, amen. So the holidays are a wonderful time, and maybe some of you go to the movies occasionally during the holidays. Around Thanksgiving, around Christmas, there are a lot of new releases. And the day after Thanksgiving, my wife, my sister-in-law, and my father-in-law, we went together to go see a movie. We went and saw, uh, saw the movie Arrival. Now, Arrival is, is not a Christmas movie. It is an alien movie. More kind of like a, an alien invasion uh, movie in, in some sense. You'll have to go see it if you're interested. You can ask me more about it and I'll give you uh, further thoughts. Uh, but it's not your typical alien kind of invasion movie. There is no war. There's no real battle. It's, it's, it, it asks different types of questions. It asks, what would it be like if aliens actually came? Uh, how would we respond as a people? How would we respond individually as persons? So it's some very interesting questions that it tries to answer. It doesn't ask the question, what's the quickest way to blow up the aliens? So as we go into our, our, our text today, as we look at Isaiah, I think I want to pose a similar question. Christmas is the message that God has come and he is with us, that he is among us. Now, I don't believe that God is an alien, obviously, but God is a different, uh, he's different than us. He has a, a different nature. He is God, we are humans, and he has come to earth. And so the question is just like, you know, how do you respond to the aliens? How do we as people respond to this message, to this Christmas message, to this message that God has come? And more importantly, how do we respond as individuals? I think our text in this series, Baby Jesus Foretold, really wants to push that question into our hearts and into our lives. How are we going to respond to the message of Christmas, to the message of Christ, to the message of God with us? Now today we're looking at an Old Testament verse, the book of Isaiah. And, and this, this verse, chapter 7, verse 14 it promises that God will come to earth. So we stand on this side of, of Jesus' arrival, uh, but this, this letter was written 700 uh, years before the birth of Jesus, and it pointed forward to his arrival. Now, we're just jumping into this one little section, and so I want to give you some context to just help you understand uh, kind of the, where this verse falls in the book of Isaiah and what's kind of the story that's going on. Catherine uh, read the, the surrounding uh, text, verses 10 through 14, and that helps give us an idea. Uh, but if we look at the context, in approximately 732 B.C., so uh, quite a while before the birth of Jesus, uh, Syria, known as Aram in the, in the Old Testament, and Israel, known as Ephraim, uh, form an alliance. Now, Israel 
there's, there's southern Judah and there's northern Israel. And Israel forms an alliance with the Syrians, and they form an alliance against the nation-state of Assyria. Now, Assyria is kind of like the global superpower of its day. It's kind of like the U.S. or, or Russia or China. It's huge, it's big, and it's full of a lot of power. And it is known for its uh, kind of siege weapons. It's known for its very aggressive tactics. So when it went into battle, uh, if, if you didn't surrender and you lost, they would do terrible, horrible things to you so that their name uh, was kind of a name to be feared among the people so that the next time they went into battle, the, 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 the kingdom would just submit, would lay down their arms. And yet, Syria and Israel, they want to be free of Assyria's influence, and so they go to war. Not the smartest thing to do. But they need the help of southern Judah. So we have northern Israel, southern Judah. They want their help because Assyria is on one side and Judah's on the other. And if they don't have Judah's help, they're kind of kind of be in between them in ancient uh, Palestine, and it's just not a good place, and their forces, their army, their military will be stronger if they have all three of these nations combined. But the king of Judah at that time is a man named Ahaz, and King Ahaz refuses to partner with, uh, with Syria and Israel. So Syria and Israel, they attack Judah. They attack Judah. And there's this prophet, Isaiah, whose uh, his life and his ministry are happening at that time. And he goes to the king. He goes to King Ahaz and says, trust God, King Ahaz. You can trust God, even though it seems like Assyria is against you, Syria, Israel. Even though it seems like all these world powers are against you, you can still trust God. In fact, why don't you ask of God for a sign? Ask a, a sign that's as, as high as the heavens or as low as Sheol. Ask a sign that's just amazing, just so that you know that God is good on his promises. But King Ahaz doesn't listen. He, he refuses the sign. He, he, Isaiah tells him to ask of a sign, and Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask God of a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this seems very like religious and very holy. Well, I won't put God to the test. But the truth is, King Ahaz has already formed his own alliance. <laughs> he has already contacted the king of Assyria and is willing to pay gold for the king of Assyria to come and get rid of Syria and uh, Israel. See, he hasn't put his trust in God. He's put his trust in that foreign superpower. And so Isaiah decides to give him a sign, a different kind of sign, a sign that doesn't say short-term deliverance is coming, but it's a sign of long-term hope. He prophesies that a child will be born, a special child, and this child won't be King Ahaz's son this child won't be the prophet Isaiah's son. King Ahaz's son was a very famous king known as Hezekiah. It won't be Hezekiah. It won't be his like, great-grandson who was Josiah. It won't be any of them. It'll be a king who's coming much further down the line. It'll be the Messiah. Messiah means God's anointed one, God's 
only chosen king, a deliverer who will come and rescue the people of God. Now, let's look at that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So here, Isaiah gives a sign to the king anyways. And this, 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 this sign comes in two parts. And I want us to just kind of look at one part first, the virgin birth. And then we're going to look at the second part, the name Emmanuel and what that means. So it's one side, two parts, virgin birth and Emmanuel. And just like Ahaz was called to believe in his day, he was supposed to believe in the sign. He was supposed to have faith. Ultimately, putting his faith in God and that God is good on his promises, that God is faithful. Isaiah is saying to us today from the scriptures, uh, 2,700 years later, are you willing to put your faith in the God who can provide this sign? Will you trust in God this Christmas season? So let's look at the first half of the sign, the virgin birth. We believe in the miraculous virgin birth as as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Now, Isaiah promises that a virgin will give birth to the Messiah. And and since since King Ahaz refused to sign, Isaiah is kind of like, Well, God's going to choose a sign, (laughs) and God is going to choose a sign that no one would ever think of. See, when humans uh, think of, like, miraculous things, when we want to put God to the test, we're kind of like, well, God, would would you knock my water glass over? If you knock my water glass over, I'll believe in you. I've done that. I don't know if any of you have prayed that. <laughs> or, or maybe, you know, God, will you, will you, like, crumble the mountain? If it actually crumbled, I don't know what I would do. But Isaiah gives a kind of God's sign, and God's sign is much more creative, much more powerful. Uh, much, it has much longer uh, kind of consequences and, and, and results. It's that a, a virgin will give birth to a son. And we believe as Christians that this prophecy didn't just get spoken into the air and then never came real. We we believe that it it came true in the birth of Jesus Christ 700 years later, the birth of Jesus to a virgin named Mary. Now, just to give you some context of uh, our passage, so our foundation verse is Matthew 1, 23, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. Uh, but first to give you some context. So Mary is, is betrothed to a man named Joseph. So this is your typical kind of nativity uh, story. Uh, Mary is, is betrothed, and in that culture, betrothal is much more serious than just being engaged. Legally, you're married. You're not actually living together, uh, but uh, so the, the wife is living at, uh, at her father's home, but the, the, the husband is actually called her husband. And this betrothal was for a year, and then they would have the actual marriage, and then they would live together. And the only way to get out of that betrothal and that culture was to have a divorce. And that seems so foreign to us, but that was the way they did things. And when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, you know, of course, his first thought is, well, you know, she committed adultery. She cheated. 
and he determines that he's going to divorce her. But he does it in a way that is compassionate than what could take place. In that culture, under the law, you could have uh, your wife stoned for adultery. It's pretty wild. And Joseph says, I'm going to divorce her quietly. That's what he decides. And this is where we look at Matthew 1, verses 20 through 23, as he was considering this. So he's considering the divorce. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, as Christians, we believe in a miraculous virgin birth, which Isaiah prophesied, and we believe that it comes true with Jesus. Now, I want to answer... Uh, an objection. Some of you may have heard of this objection, perhaps in in popular culture, Uh, but some of you that that, that know the Old Testament or have heard of this might know that that, so Matthew prophesied uh, in the New Testament, kind of uh, referring back to the Old Testament, referring back to Isaiah. And the objection is, well, Isaiah didn't really mean a virgin. Uh, I'm going to put the objection on the screen. The word virgin in Hebrew is the word Alma, and it really means young women. And so if if Isaiah is prophesying, he's he's really just saying, well, a young woman is going to give birth. His name is going to be Emmanuel. This is a sign to King Ahaz in his context, not a a long-term sign. It's a a very short-term sign. And the Hebrew word for virgin is different than Alma. The Hebrew word for virgin is Bethula, and it's not used here. Instead, the the word for young woman or maiden, Alma, is used here. So when Matthew quotes this verse, he's misquoting the verse. And that means we don't have to believe. We don't have to believe in the virgin birth because it, it it, it was a confusion between the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah didn't really mean a virgin birth. Therefore, we don't have to believe in the miracle. Uh, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. So it kind of has big consequences. Now, there are three answers to this that I want to give you. Answer number one, Alma is used, so that Hebrew word is used of young unmarried women who are virgins until proven otherwise. So it doesn't, the word itself does not mean virginity. It does not mean young virgin, but it implies it, if that makes any sense. You assume, okay, this is a young unmarried woman. So it's reasonable to assume the virginity. Answer number two, a normal birth does not count as a supernatural sign. If God were to come up with an amazing sign, would he come up with just your average normal birth? I don't think so. There's something special. There's something significant about the birth of the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king. God does the impossible, and he likes to show off sometimes. Answer number three. The Jewish translation of the Old Testament into Greek which, which was uh, translated about 200 years before the birth of Jesus, translates the word as virgin. 
So in other words, the pre-Christian translation, 200 years before uh, Jesus, before Christianity, that edition translates it as virgin. So there's a, there's a, we can trust the scriptures. We can trust the New Testament. We can trust the book of Matthew, Matthew 123. But then we can also trust in kind of our English translation of the book of Isaiah, that it's a good translation and that Jesus really is born of a virgin. So this is interesting to me, hopefully to you, uh, but why does it matter? Like what's so important about the birth uh, being a virgin birth? Why should that matter to Christians? Well, I want to give you an illustration of why this matters. This building is a very nice building. It is less than uh, 15 years old. Uh, 2003, I think, is when they uh, finished the reconstruction and it's because in 2001, uh, the, the church that was here, they were called Westford Bible Church, uh, their roof collapsed. So these are two pictures of the roof collapse. It was a, a quaint, white, New England uh, church. It was beautiful. But there was heavy snowfall. Two more pictures. There was heavy snowfall. And uh, kind of the legend goes... Uh, that southern architects really designed the building and that there was so much heavy New England snow uh, that the, the roof just kind of collapsed in on itself. The legend also goes that Bernie helped build the roof, and that's really why it, 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 fell, it fell down. So saying, uh, so, so there, were, there were structural flaws in the roof, there were structural weaknesses. And at first, these things didn't matter. Uh, people worshipped in this building for many, many years. I believe it was built in the 80s. They, they worshipped here. They, they had uh, times of fellowship and joy. But one day, when the, the pressures of that snow came down on the building, the, the roof, the whole building collapsed. Saying that Jesus isn't born of a virgin uh, introduces uh, structural weaknesses into Christianity. It, it, it introduces design flaws that at first might not show, that might not matter. But when the world brings serious challenges to the truth claims of Christ, we will collapse if we don't hold to the virginity of Mary. I'm going to explain that a little bit more, but I hope that by the end of this message, you'll see why the virginity of Mary is so important. Now, there are uh, many, many creeds. So we just read through a creed today, and it, and it emphasizes uh, two things. It emphasizes the birth of Jesus uh, and that he is the son of God. Now, how do we know that he is the son of God? Uh, it's because his, his father is God himself. So well, let's jump right into that. The virgin birth tells us that Mary was Jesus's biological mother, but Joseph wasn't his biological father. In other words, uh, Joseph was his adopted father. So if Joseph is not Jesus's father, who is? Well, God is. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, God is Jesus' biological father. And that means when Jesus is born, he not only takes on human nature, he's a human, Mary's his mother, but he also takes on his father's nature, right? 
And his father's nature is God. So Jesus is both God and man. Now, I believe that Jesus wasn't created at his conception. Jesus was always the son of God, but he, he took on flesh. He became a man. Something, something significant happened. God became incarnate. Incarnate means God took on flesh through Jesus Christ. So if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then could God be his father? Could Jesus be God? Well, no. In fact, if, if Mary wasn't his mother, Jesus would just be a good man. He would be an unlucky man. Jesus would just be your normal man, and so he wouldn't be able to pay for sins. He wouldn't be able to forgive us. He wouldn't be able to give us eternal life. Now, jumping again to the creeds. So we read a creed earlier in the church. The creeds make this connection between Jesus' virginity and Jesus' divinity, that he's God and that that her virginity plays an important part in this. The Apostles' Creed, it's written in the first and second century, says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So the two, the two go together, Jesus is God and born of the Virgin. The Nicene Creed, uh, written in about 325 A.D., it says, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. He became incarnate from, virgin, from the Virgin Mary and was made man. There's a more recent creed uh, from 1990. It's, called, it's a song called Creed. It's written by a Christian rock band called Petra in their album Beyond Belief. And he says, I believe in God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, I believe in the virgin birth. I, I will refrain from singing that uh, to you, but I encourage you to go home and listen to it because it's a great song. So the virgin birth is the first half of the messianic sign, which points to the second half, which is Emmanuel. Emmanuel in Hebrew just means God with us. See, we believe in a baby who is both God and man, who's 100% God, fully God, and 100% man. When you ask me, how can that be possible? I say, I don't know. But that's one of the reasons I believe in Christianity, because I don't want to be able to understand, to fully comprehend my God. I want my God to surpass my understanding. And Jesus does just that from day one, when he's born. Now, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will be a king who is both God and man. And if there's any doubt that Isaiah was referring to Emmanuel, to God with us, you can look to chapter 9. See, two chapters later, Isaiah really emphasizes that this child, this Messiah, he is going to be God, God in the flesh. Also a man, but God in the flesh. Isaiah chapter 9, we're just going to look at verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So what is this baby who is born called? He is called Mighty God. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like this baby is going to be God. Two cha- uh, one chapter later in Isaiah 10, the, the phrase Mighty God refers to Yahweh. That's God's Old Testament name. That's God's promise name or his, his covenant name, Yahweh. 
So this baby is going to be mighty God, and mighty God is Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh is going to be born as a child, as a babe. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 9, verse 6, it's still not as clear as it could be. My, my friends just sent me a Christmas postcard. You ever receive those in the mail? And they have a picture of their little baby boy in the postcard. And on the back, it has Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a son is born. And Isaiah is like receiving that postcard in black and white. Like a grainy postcard where you can see, well, there's going to be a child that's born. This is an announcement of a child that's coming. But I can't see the full picture quite yet. I can't see it in full color. And that's why we flip to Matthew chapter uh, 1, and we see that Jesus fulfills these promises. I'm going to go ahead and put up the full color picture of Jesus, of this prophecy, Matthew 1, verses 20 through 23. We've already read this, but I want us to read it again and to see that this passage emphasizes Jesus' birth of a virgin but also his, his divinity, that he is indeed God. So Joseph, son of David, this is the angel speaking, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Notice, uh, Matthew is emphasizing the name. We're going to come back to what the name Jesus means. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said from the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph doesn't get to name his son. In that culture, you would expect the fathers to name them. So who gets to name the son? God gets to name his son because Jesus is the son of God. And he, he sends an angel to announce this baby's name. This baby's name uh, is Jesus, and it means that he'll save people from their sins. And if you actually look at what Jesus' name means, it means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves so Jesus, from that Old Testament passage in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus is mighty God. Mighty God is Yahweh. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And that means the God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the whole Bible has arrived at a specific point in history. <laughs> he has been born to a virgin his name is Jesus, and even Jesus' name is special because it announces, it announces good news that God has come to save his people. That finally, that long-awaited hope has arrived. It has not arrived as, as some silly sign. It has arrived as a care package, as a, as a small baby boy in a nativity, in a, in a, in a manger, did you know that the name Christ is not just Jesus' last name? The name Christ is the name Messiah. It's the Greek for Messiah. So whenever someone says, you know, Jesus Christ, you can say, yes, he is. Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the king of kings. God's promise, that's who Jesus is. And amazingly, he's God and he's man. 
and he's come to save us. He's come to do something. He hasn't just come to, to, to put on a show. God has stepped down into our stories to enter into our lives and to make a difference. See, through Jesus, God steps down into the big story. Now, the Bible tells the big story of everything. It's, you can summarize the big story of everything from the Bible's point of view in four different words. And I want to give you the first one here. The first one is creation. You can read about this part of the story in Genesis. See, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, God created everything and he created it perfect. That humans had a perfect relationship with God. There was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was no war, no famine, uh, no disease, no bitterness. There was a perfect relationship between God and humans, between Adam and Eve and God. But then the serpent, Satan, he entered into the garden. He entered into tempt Adam and Eve, the first humans. And I wish that they hadn't given in to the temptation, but they did. They chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe you're thinking, well, eating from a, a fruit isn't that big of a deal. How come they, they're thrown out of the garden? Well, it's because by eating that, by disobeying God, God said, don't eat from that tree. They're saying, God, we're going to do life our way. We're going to put our needs first, our wants first. We're not going to trust you, God. See, we didn't, uh, God didn't mess everything up. We did. And that's called the fall. So the question is, is God going to leave us to perish? Is God going to leave us in a broken world full of hurt, full of pain, full of sin? Or does God care enough to come and to rescue us? See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God steps down into our story. He could have let this story go on forever, and we would never evolve out of this pain, out of this fallen state. But God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. And the interesting thing is Jesus is the only one who can redeem us. He's the only one who can buy us back, that can pay the penalty for our sins because he has to renegotiate the relationship between God and humans, right? And you can only have a mediator, someone who can negotiate that, if they can represent both parties, right? And Jesus is 100% God, so he can represent God. And he's also 100% man. He can represent humans. And how does, he, how does he produce redemption? By meeting all of God's demands that, that sin must be paid for. He spills his own blood on the cross. He pays the penalty for our sins and then he rises again. The resurrection. And, and, and guess what? The story doesn't end here with Jesus just paying for our sins but still leaving us in a fallen state. Because Jesus is going to come back. We, we celebrate the first advent, but there's going to be a second advent. And when he comes, the new creation is going to come with him. He is going to renew and restore this creation. Just like you can have a renovation in your house. God is going to uh, recreate this world, push out all of the sin. This is the gospel. This is the good news. My big idea, my main point is that God entered into our story through the virgin birth of baby Jesus. He entered into my story, into your story, into the story of redemption. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to restore that perfect relationship that humans had in the garden. And he knows, God knows that we could never restore that relationship because we're broken. 
We can't fix ourselves. We're broken beyond repair, but he can. Don't you want that? Don't you want a relationship with the God who, who is willing to enter into our stories? God is different than our, our best dreams, our, our best imaginations of what God could be, of, 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 of what could take place. In the movie I saw, the aliens, uh, it was kind of like the hope. The aliens come and they kind of give us what we need to, to be our best. But you can't relate to an alien. In the movie, they're called heptapods. They have seven limbs. They look like giant octopuses. They can't speak their language. They can't, they can't give each other hugs. They can't sit at a table and eat a pizza with you. They can't talk. They can't cry. They can't laugh. See, the God of Christianity can do all those things, and he has done those things, except for maybe the pizza. He entered into our creation. He sits at tables with us through Jesus. Jesus sat, and he walked, and he cried, and he laughed, and he had joy. He's experienced everything that we experience. And this Christmas, I don't know what your experience is. Maybe you're enjoying the Christmas season. Maybe it's a hard Christmas season. But that you can know that if you have a relationship with Jesus, just by simply trusting in him, that he is still walking with you through the season, through those highs and through those lows. You can know that Jesus understands every single thing we go through, even death. See, God understands what it, what it means to die. Like, I, I, death is my worst fear, right? I think it's most of our worst fears. Jesus conquered the grave. He conquered our worst fear through his resurrection. Uh, John Wesley, he was the founder of Methodism, and his last words are, the best of all is God is with us. That was his last dying words, because he knew God being with us changes everything. It changes death into life. It changes despair and despondency into hope and joy. Jesus isn't just a spiritual guru or a charismatic man. He's the God who has entered into our stories. He entered into our story through the virgin birth of baby Jesus. So I want to challenge you. Do you believe this message? And if you don't, would you consider? Would you consider believing this message? Would you consider taking the time to investigate the scriptures? Because if this is a truth story, it changes everything. It changes the direction of each of our lives. See, King Ahaz, he refused to believe the story. And uh, it was his loss. The Assyrians came and they attacked them. It didn't work out to trust in the world's powers. But Joseph, a carpenter in the, in the Middle East, a humble man, he did believe the promise. And it changed his life. Jesus was, uh, Joseph was on the way to get divorced. <laughs> he was heading towards divorce. But the good news, the gospel that God is with us, it changed his entire life. He became a married man, and he became father of God in the flesh. He's still the father. He's the adopted dad of Jesus Christ. The gospel, this good news, certainly changed my life, changed the direction of my life. I grew up in Estes Park, Colorado, 2,000 miles away from here, an entirely different culture. <laughs> and now I'm here. It's because God is with us. God changes our stories, changes the direction of our life. He does this by entering into our story through 
the virgin birth of baby Jesus. I'm going to close with this last little story, and then we're going to sing some music and we'll be done. But I want you to, to listen to this last story. And I'm sharing it to you. It's from Timothy Keller. He's the pastor of a church in New York City. Uh, but it illustrates the point of God entering into our story. Some of you may have heard of Dorothy Sayers. She is a famous uh, British crime novelist. And she loved to write short stories, to, to write mysteries, to write novels. And her novels, uh, her short stories, her crime series is set between uh, the First and Second World Wars, so in the 1930s. And her, fir- her, her most uh, famous star was an English aristocrat named uh, Lord Peter Whimsey. Now, Lord Peter Whimsey, he's kind of your typical Sherlock Holmes kind of character. Um, he's an eccentric character. He's, he's smart, intelligent. Uh, he's well-intentioned. He makes lots of mistakes. But he's also a broken character. He's a hurting character. He has problems. He has hurts. And he can't fix himself. And about halfway through these novels, there's a whole set of novels, Sayers the author, she introduces a new character into the story named Harriet Vane. Now, Harriet Vane, she is a writer of mystery novels, and she is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And it goes in the story that Peter, uh, that Lord Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane, they fall in love. And, and uh, Harriet, she begins to care for Lord Peter Whimsey. They eventually marry, and she helps him heal. She helps him work through his problems, and they live a happy life. So just like Harriet was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, that's Dorothy Sayers' story too. See, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She loved writing mystery and crime novels. See, Dorothy Sayers, she looked down at Lord Peter Whimsey in her story in the world that she had created, and she loved him. She saw him as a real human being with feelings and hurt and needed to be healed. And instead of expecting him to just figure out his problems, she entered into his world. (laughs) She wrote herself into the story so that she could come and bind the brokenhearted and heal the wounded, so that she could come and love him in the world that he understood. That is the story of Christianity. God has looked down upon us, upon you and me, and he's loved us. And he said, I'm going to enter into your story through my birth, the virgin birth, because I love you. You can't fix yourselves, but I can. See, God entered our story through the virgin birth of baby Jesus, and he loves us. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for entering into our story. You did so in a breathtaking way, in a beautiful way. God, help us to recognize you, to believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.